So go ahead again and open your Bible, if you haven't, to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. And in a few moments, we'll begin in 4.13. I had lofty goals to do 4.13 to 18, and that's just not a reality for someone like me. So we'll do well to do 13 and 14 today. But in this passage, I think it's important to note that the Apostle Paul is, is here beginning a new thought, and it is a glorious thought that he is beginning to address here. And, and the section of scripture we're going to be looking at is, is understand it's designed to be a comforting pastoral exhortation. It, it's meant to bring comfort to those in need and to bring them hope and clarity about the things to come. But sadly, many today in, in the past have used this passage wrongly and ended up cultivating eschatological confusion and division because they didn't rightly divide the word of truth here. And that's not the intention of the author, the Holy Spirit, nor the human author, the Apostle Paul. It's the opposite purpose for which this text is given by the Spirit. So up front, let me tell you, confusion is not my goal this morning, though you may find yourself there. That's not what I'm shooting for. Okay, I'm here today to try to bring you hope from this text. So even today, if you don't agree with my eschatological conclusions or my view of the last things, it's okay. You probably need to change, but that's okay, and, and you'll eventually get there. But, but my goal this morning is to really to, to comfort you, to encourage you through the hope that's given to us in this revelation of Christ's resurrection and return, his second coming. Now, I mention all that because eschatology is often a, a dividing point, and it should not be. It's meant to unite our hearts in the truth of God's word, not divide us. But I do know that as we read a text like this into chapter 5, and you have to read it in the context of the two epistles together, I know that I will end up raising more questions than I can possibly answer in the time we have before us. So I'm being honest and upfront with you. I know that I cannot and I will not be able to unpack all of the eschatological nuances that are crammed into this section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. But what I want to do is I want to give you a summary, a summary look at verses 13 and 14 to basically help you to think about the eschatological hope that we find in this section of Scripture. So now I want to read from verse 13 down to 18 to sort of lay this before you to consider. Beginning in 413, again, the Apostle Paul starts a new thought. He's answering a question that was brought to him likely by Timothy from this church at Thessalonica. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, based on this revelation, therefore, 
encourage one another with these words. This is meant to encourage us this morning. If you have loved ones who have died and you wonder what they're doing, you wonder what's happening, you wonder where they'll be at the second coming. He's saying these words should encourage you this morning. And I hope that they do. The outline that I would have for this would be real simple. Two points. And again, I'm only going to cover one today. But in 13 and 14, we see our present hope is secured by the revelation of Christ's resurrection. That's his argument in these two first verses. But he also goes on in verses 15 to 18 to say that our future hope is strengthened by the revelation of Christ's second coming, which is in that section. So so here's what's going on, just so I can bring everybody up to speed. Here's what's going on in this passage in the context here. This church, the Thessalonican church here, it's a healthy church. It's a truly healthy, prospering church, biblically speaking. They're marked out by faith, hope, and love. And I think that this text itself reveals how much they loved those who had departed, those who had died, and what they were going to miss out on. They were grieving over their loss. And and they had grown in many ways while the Apostle Paul was there with them for a very short time, maybe maybe a month, and he was swept away. And they'd been growing through all these things that he had taught them, but they still had some very serious questions about last things. Those are the things that he addresses in this section of Scripture down into chapter 5. They had questions about the death of believers, the resurrection of the dead, and the second coming. And and it's likely that these, these questions came out of their cultural background. They were fueled by their upbringing and their pagan culture and their ideologies of the day. Their, their culture had taught them, and this is so sad to think about, but this is what it was like. It had taught them that once a person dies, that's it. End of story. No hope. No hope of life after death. Nothing. You're done. This life is all you got. Once it's over, you're nothing more than an animal in a grave. There was an inscription that was put there in their city, even before this epistle was written. And it said this. After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. Now, this is on their mind. This is their upbringing. And it's likely that that kind of thinking was still plaguing them because because it, it was still a part of who they were in the past. It's still prevalent in their cultural life. But here they were plagued with something because they had been taught by Paul that Christ was coming again. And yet they expected it to happen immediately in their lifetime before these people would die. But what was likely happening here is many people there or some people there were were dying in in Christ. They were believers who had died possibly due to persecution, the persecution they were suffering that Paul suffered. And, And if they weren't dead now, they might die soon because that persecution was going to intensify. And so they needed answers. They they wanted answers Because, again, they expected by what they had heard from Paul at the beginning that that Christ is coming. That's 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 going to happen real soon. And what happens to those who die before he comes? What's going to happen to them in the end? And, And so it's important for us to look at what he has taught them, I think, so that we can understand maybe their mentality a little bit. So go to chapter one. The first Thessalonians. And here you can see that, that he had taught them something about Christ's resurrection and Christ's second coming. Beginning in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then catch this and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I believe the wrath to come ultimately is the wrath of God Almighty. It is Christ who has delivered us from that tribulation, that trial and that wrath to come. But he's saying is, look, you're waiting on the son from heaven. You're waiting on the one who is resurrected from the dead. This is your hope. They knew that much. They also knew this in Second Thessalonians chapter one. They also knew that Paul had taught them that Christ's second coming was the next eschatological reality that was on the horizon. The next thing that's coming. Look what it says in chapter one, verse three. We ought always to give thanks to you, to God, or rather, let me start over. (laughs) Had way too much coffee this morning. All right, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, notice this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So they knew that this was the next eschatological event on the horizon because Paul had taught them this. They understood that, but they still had this cultural mentality plaguing them. And they still had questions about those who were dying among them. And they were beginning to think, and this is, I think, a a noble thought that they had. I don't think we should criticize them for what he writes in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. But they had this noble thought, if you will, that if if you're a saint, you're born again, and you die before Christ comes, are you going to miss out on the second coming? Are you going to miss out on the great reward and the blessing of his second coming? That's what they were, I think, concerned about. They were beginning to speculate. And listen, whenever there's a a vacuum of knowledge, we begin to speculate. We begin to insert here what we want to believe. And we can't do that. They shouldn't do that. That's why God has given us his word to guide us in this. We don't want to speculate about this, he says. So I'm going to give you this revelation from God. I'm going to give you this epistle with this letter that states what's going on here. Because they not only thought that their beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that died, they thought that they were missing out on this great return of Christ and the blessings associated. They also began to think that it's possible that some of those people who said they were Christians really weren't. Or they were in sin. This was God's judgment on them. They're in unbelief. We don't know for sure. 
It just seemed like there was some speculation going on that concerned them. It's concerning to them because they didn't expect it to happen this way. They expected it to be clear cut. They're born again. He says, Christ is coming soon. It's going to happen in our lifetime. And that didn't happen the way they had thought it would. So they were confused and they were grieved. And I think that it mentions this because they were truly grieved about those they loved that they thought might miss out on the glorious day of Christ's return. Again, I think that speaks volumes to us about how much they loved those beloved saints that died before this event occurred. I mean, they wanted them to see what they were going to see when Jesus comes again in glory. They wanted it so bad their hearts were broken over this. And I think that that kind of love should be something that we would want to emulate, even though it's not informed here. It will be so they can use it properly. But we should have that sort of love for one another that we don't want any of our brothers and sisters in this church to miss out on any of the blessings that are promised to us in Christ. We want them to be a part of it. We want them to be with us in it. And that's what their desire was. But that's also why they grieve so deeply here. We don't know exactly what their question was. It's not given to us. It's just we can piece this together from what we see in the answer here. What we know for sure here, we don't know the question, but we know the answer, right? We know that for sure that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write a timeless, transcendent answer. An answer about one glorious event that encompasses the death of believers and hope, our hope, in Christ's resurrection and return. And it's given to us in order to bring comfort and clarity to us when we are grieved by death or by trials that we face or that others that we love endure. That seems to be why I think in First Thessalonians 4, here 13 to 18, he reveals to us not the details, but the big picture about the last things. The last things, as I said, such as the death of believers, Christ's return, our resurrection and the final consummation of the age. It's all here. It's all one big event. He says, look, if you're in Christ, you're always going to be in Christ, whether it's in glory and you come with him and then you receive it all at the same time. Or you're going to be here when he comes and you'll see it when it happens. Take comfort in that. Encourage one another with these words. He's telling them, here's the big picture about these last things. He's addressing them in a summary fashion here, I think, though, to give us a present hope and in hard times as well. I think he he does this knowing that, that I can't. Get into all the details. He doesn't get into all the details. I wish he got into more of the details. It would be nice. But what we have to do is let Scripture interpret Scripture to find the details. And so as we do that, we begin to see that. But here, he doesn't give these intricate details in this passage, but he sums up the big picture for us. And he gives us exactly what we need in our grief, in our sorrow, in our concern for others. He gives us present and future hope. And so next time, Lord willing... I'll do more than two verses. Maybe I'll do three or four. And we'll actually try to connect some more of the eschatological dots and details as we get into that. There's much more in that than I could even touch on today. But let's look at the first summation. It's a summary there in 13 and 14, a summary of our hope in Christ's resurrection. This is the foundational argument he gives for why they can have hope about those who have died before Christ returns. Here in 13 and 14, he reveals something I think very critical, very important to us, even as our witness to others. He reveals that physical death doesn't end a Christian's union with Christ. 
If anything, it accentuates it, right? It elevates it. But he says, well, we do not want you to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. Brothers, he's speaking kindly to them about those who are asleep. It's a euphemism for death. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That is the pagans, right? Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he's a statement of faith here. This is your confession of faith, right? Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What he's saying there in that last part is, through Jesus' saving work, God will bring with Christ, when he comes, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ. We need to understand something about this because dispensationalism has woefully got this wrong in so many times in so many places. When this happens and this event happens, Christ will bring all the departed souls, all those souls for which Christ would die by faith in God's promises. He will bring all the souls of the elect in heaven at the second coming. That is Old and New Testament saints, all of them from Adam onward. This is one big eschatological event, the last and final event. And all who are saved by grace through faith and what God promised in his provision in Christ, they will all be there to take place in this glorious, glorious return of Christ. This is exciting. There's going to be a day, folks, when Christ comes And our Savior, who suffered so much here on earth, comes in victory to say, look what I've done and look who I brought with me. And we will all join him in the air. We'll all gather together on this planet as he reigns forever and ever and ever. Back in 13 and 14, we learn, this is the one bullet point we got here. We learn that our present hope in the face of death is secured by the revelation of Christ's resurrection. That is, that is the, the one thing that secures us in a world that's dying. Death is everywhere. I was taking my boys one time to see a good friend of mine, and we went down behind his house to a shed, and he wanted to show me some, some material he had back there. And as we're walking, there's this stench that hit my oldest, Jacob, at the time. He was about 10 years old. It hit him, and he just took a step back, and he's like, Whoa, Dad, what is that? And I looked up on top of that shed, and there was an old bobcat that he was drying out. That bobcat had been up there about five days in the sun in August. He smelt the stench of death. He saw the result of sin. We live in a world that smells like that. Death is everywhere. And our present hope in a dying world in the face of death is secured by this resurrection that we see testified to in Scripture. That we believe in. We believe that he rose from the dead. So, first of all, Paul reveals this big picture about what happens when Christians die, I think, here to comfort us. But then in in verse 14, he he tells us that this is our present hope when, when death and sorrows come as well. And he makes that clear to us as you read the rest of his epistles. The resurrection of Christ is, is what gives us hope in all things, now and for eternity. We're in glory because of the resurrection of Christ. We're saved because of the resurrection of Christ. He was the one who justified us by his resurrection. His sacrifice was accepted in our place. Therefore, he brought us in as children of God, adopted through his blood. It's clear when you read through the epistles that Paul wrote that this was a critical 
critical doctrine that he emphasized. And it was the one that secured us in the face of all kinds of death and opposition and suffering. Look with me over to uh, 1 Corinthians. You know where I'm going. 1 Corinthians 15. He's telling us this is your present hope in the midst of all the sorrow and all the woe that comes into this world because of sin. This is the believer's hope presently and for eternity. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Without this hope, we would be doomed. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that is not the case, because when we die, for the believer, death is not death. It's only the beginning of true life in Christ. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's arguing for the resurrection because Christ lives. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. and You are still in your sins. Then those who... Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Then comes the end. When Christ returns, it's a wrap. It's over. The consummation of all things. When he brings his children with him that are in glory in heaven, his, the souls of the departed saints, and we gather together those who are left on the earth, when he comes... He comes to testify to his glory and his victory over all things. This passage tells us that if we've trusted in this resurrected Savior, in his life and his death and his resurrection, it's telling us that we will be the fruit of his resurrection at his second coming. That's important. We're the fruit of his work. We're the fruit that is revealed at his second coming because we have been united to him by faith in what he has accomplished. And we're united to Christ. We're in union with Christ for one reason and one reason only to reveal his supremacy, his supremacy over our sin, over corruption, over death. And we'll do all of that in our resurrected bodies. Our resurrection testifies to his supremacy. And, and if, if you are born again and you die in faith, you die in Christ, and you enter into his presence, when you are in his presence, you will long still for the day that you'll be reunited to your body so that you can make this testimony to all the world for all eternity. We see that happening actually in scripture. Go to Revelation chapter 6. Our souls will long for the day that we can reveal the supremacy of Christ over all things. We see it here in 6-9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls 
of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge, you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The souls in heaven, the saints in glory, they are still longing for the day of the resurrection of our bodies so that they can testify to Christ's supremacy fully in all things and through all things. So that brings us back to Thessalonians and the question they had. When they ask a question, you know, what about those who are dead? What about those who are asleep? He's merely talking about the body, not the soul. We need to understand that. Okay. When he speaks about those who are asleep, he's, he's using the term sleep as a euphemism for death. But let's make sure we're clear on this. He is not saying that the body and the soul are both asleep. He's not saying in this euphemism that the body and soul are both in the grave. He's not saying that there is no consciousness. He's referring only to the body here that sleeps in the ground, that sleeps in the earth. Not the soul. And there are some twisted people throughout church history that have done this. They have taught quite the opposite. They've tried to teach something called soul sleep. And what they mean by that is when we die, when Christians die, they go into a state of unconscious existence until Christ returns. Now, let me be very clear about that. Okay, let me be very, very clear. That is not only absolutely incorrect, that is heretical. That is heretical. We know that's heretical because we have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. We have the word of God that tells us otherwise. We have the testimony of Revelation 6 that tells us otherwise. Paul clears it up for us. He clears up what happens to our, our soul when we die in Christ. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, yes, we are of good courage. Then he says this. Does this sound like a, an unconscious state of existence here? We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. If that's not enough, go to Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. He's speaking about his ministry here at Philippi and his longing to serve these dearly beloved saints. And he says, for to me... To live is Christ. Every, everything about my life is Christ. I want to magnify Him. I want to serve Him. I want to honor Him. And to die is even better. What? It's gain. He's saying, all my life is consumed with Christ. I live for Jesus. But dying is gain. Well, that must mean there's more than just an unconscious existence. And he tells us that that's the case. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, strike the tent, meaning take down the body, and be with Christ, for that is far better. So it's far better because there's a conscious state that he's going to be in, in Christ's presence. When we die, we enter into glory. We enter into his presence. It is our soul that is there. Our body lies in the grave, awaiting the resurrection of the dead and the great reunion to come. But it's not just the believer that has a conscious state. It's also the unbeliever. 
Unbelievers do not suffer soul sleep, unconscious existence. When they die, they are very much awake, but not in glory. When they die, they're placed in a place called Hades, and they are consciously suffering there. This is serious. We talk about the power of the gospel. We talk about the need to proclaim Christ and honor his, his, his name and all that we do. And we do that because these people would not and will not forever do that. And that's why they're there. They are missing the blessing. They are missing the joy. They are missing the peace. They are missing what God has promised to those who trust in his son. And they deserve what they're getting. That's what's so frightening here. And so do we. But God, who is rich in mercy, he has graced us in Christ. And he brought us out of this state of suffering and brought us into peace. But look what it says in Luke 16, so that we can see what this would look like. Luke 16, verse 22. The Lord Jesus speaking. The story of rich man and Lazarus. I do not believe this is a parable. I believe this is really two people. That he's talking about here. In verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom or side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It is a very conscious state, state of suffering. And notice what he does not do. He doesn't cry out to God and confess his sins. He doesn't do that. He just simply wants relief from his suffering. He won't ever get it. It will never come. This judgment is eternal. And one day it will be beyond the soul and it will be something they face in their own bodies. You've got you to understand that too. When, when Christ returns, unbelievers will be judged in their fullness. And to do that, they'll be raised up for this judgment in their bodies. They'll be raised to be judged for their sins in their bodies, according to Revelation chapter 20. Not unto eternal life, not into bliss, not into the blessing of Christ's presence, but under his wrath as their judge. They'll be raised up to face him, the one that they blasphemed, the one that they rejected when he comes again. These are all happening. These events are all happening at the same time. And I don't understand how that works. Don't even try to get me to figure out if there's a minute timeline here. I don't get it. I just know that when Christ comes, judgment comes with him. And he comes to reign on the earth. He comes terra firma, new creation, new heavens. It's all happening at the same time. But in this is coming judgment. And it's serious what we see here that awaits those who do not turn from their sins, and trust in the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus himself. And if you're in that condition today, I beg you in Christ's name to repent and look to him. Because this is what you'll face if you don't. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found in them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. They're being judged according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Everything responds to Jesus here. All the earth responds. It gives up the dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. They'll be thrown there without hope of ever getting out. They'll be thrown there for eternity in this torment. For their sins that they did in their bodies. And when you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Let me do that with you. And again we see what he's saying there. We don't want you to be uninformed brothers. About those who have fallen asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. These are the people who have no hope. And you should grieve over those who have no hope. You should grieve over them because if they don't turn to Christ now they'll never have hope. He's saying here that that Christians should grieve, but properly, in the right way. Don't grieve like those who have no hope of eternity. No hope that your loved ones are there alive and conscious and prospering spiritually. He's saying you don't have to grieve over those who die in Christ as though you don't have hope. Because when we die in Christ, our bodies do lie in a bed, if you will, in the grave But our souls will go to be with Christ in heaven until, until Christ returns to reunite our soul to our resurrected body and glorify us on that last day, to magnify Christ through us on that last day. So in in verse 13, I think Paul, he's saying, we don't have to grieve like the world grieves. We have no reason to grieve in that sense like the world grieves. It doesn't mean we don't grieve when we lose a loved one who's a believer in Christ. We don't say that you don't grieve over that, but you don't grieve like the world grieves, as though we have no hope of ever seeing them magnify Christ in the future. We will. So he's not saying that we should not grieve over death or sorrow when other peoples go through it. He's just simply saying, don't grieve as those who do not have hope in Christ. Don't grieve in a way that reflects the grief of an unbeliever who have no hope of ever seeing that person who died without Christ. Again, when I was 18 years old, one of my dear friends from high school, a guy that I grew up with from the time I was in the second grade, he was driving from my where I live by Christmas Corner to Ada. And as he topped the hill, a dump truck was unloading asphalt onto the highway. And he ran his car straight underneath the, the dump load. Caught the top of his car, took off the top of his car along with his head. Not fully, but nearly. He lied there in the pool of his blood and a nurse came by by God's grace. She held him together and she prayed for him. I have no idea what transpired on that day. As far as I know, up until that day, he was a rank pagan. When I went to his funeral, I had never seen such hopelessness in my life. His sister, his mother, throwing themselves across the casket, moaning and groaning and weeping and wailing because they had no hope of ever seeing him again. And they knew it. They wouldn't say it, but they knew it. That's not the way we grieve. 
for those who are in Christ when they die. We, we do grieve. I, I also remember one time I was uh, asked to come along one of my brothers in Christ to be with his dad as his dad was passing. And his dad was a godly man. Loved the Lord Jesus with all his heart. Served him all his life. He's in his 80s. And he's laying in a hospital. He can't speak anymore. And so we gather around his bed and we're singing hymns to him. And I'm reading. I knew his favorite psalms were. So I was reading the psalms to him. And his mouth was following along. Though no voice came out. His mouth was mimicking every word I said and singing every song with us. Though no sound came forth. And he was laying there. Praising God. Singing. When he died, he continued on. In that moment, his song transcended the earth and went into glory. And he sings there now with Christ forevermore. And I'll see him again when Christ comes. That's the way we should rejoice when we face death, the death of a saint. We wept. We cried like I'm about to right now. We cried because he was now with his Lord and Savior. And there is joy, though we long to be with him. There was peace, though we certainly felt distant from him. We knew he was at peace with God and he will be there forevermore. That's the way we are to grieve as believers. Jesus grieved over the sight of what sin has brought into this earth. He wept. At Lazarus's grave, it literally means he burst into tears when he came to the grave. He was coming to resurrect him. He already knew what he was going to do. He waited intentionally three more days so that he would be good and dead. And then he came. But yet when he saw what sin and death had produced in this world, he was grieved and he wept. He wept over the lack of faith. He wept over the, the, the fact that we will die because of sin. And so it's not wrong for us to weep. We should weep over those who are lost and die. We should weep and we should minister to their families. We should weep when we're faced with death ourselves. And we miss one another when they're gone. It's appropriate. You should grieve. It's unnatural if you don't grieve in those instances. But you don't grieve like the world grieves. If, if your loved one or yourself is united to Christ by faith in his finished work, you can grieve in hope. You can grieve in anticipation of the glorious resurrection to come. That's how you weep. You weep with joy, knowing that this is not all there is. It's just begun. And one day there'll be a culmination of all these things, a consummation. And we'll be together around the throne, around the Lord Singing his praise. Go back with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. I'm kind of rambling, sorry. Here Paul goes on to reveal the big picture reason for our hope in the face of death. It's very clear, right? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through, through faith in what Christ has done, right? Through Jesus God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died in Christ. So he's basically just reminding us here that the reason we have present hope in the face of death is because we also have a future hope, a future assurance, a divine guarantee that through Jesus, this isn't it. We're coming again with him. We're alive in Christ 
forevermore. Death is not death to us. We have an absolute assurance of that because Jesus rose from the grave to testify to it. And those who are in him will rise with him when he comes. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians again. This is, a, I think, a critical text to look at as we sort of wrap things up here. Chapter 15. Here we see, really, I think what Paul's alluding to in these big pictures in verses 13 and 14 of Thessalonians. We see here what and when this will take place in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to tell us that on the last day, we will see... The day of Christ's return, the resurrection of the elect, and the consummation of the age. And on that day, saints' death will be swallowed up in the display of Christ's full victory. That's what we see in verses 50 to 57. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. Transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So you have both events taking place, the dead coming with Christ, the souls coming with Christ, being given a new body and those who are left being raised up with Christ and being transformed as we meet him in the air to follow him in his train of victory. It says for this perishable, decaying body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has given us victory. On that day, over the very thing that put us in the grave. On that day, all those who are in Christ will be raised together, transformed together in Christ. On that day, his full victory over sin and Satan and death and rebels will be put on display. Because that day is the same day that's spoken of in Matthew 24, or rather 25, Matthew 25. The day he speaks of in Corinthians, the day that he writes about in Thessalonians, is the day that Jesus reveals to us here in Matthew 25. I'm going to read all this. I'm just going to read a few portions of this, but 31 to 34 for sure. And then we'll jump down to 41 and 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, when he comes, and all the angels with him. Sounds a lot like Thessalonians, doesn't it? Second Thessalonians as well as First Thessalonians. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Wait, that's everybody. And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Then in verse 41 Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the day that all of the elect of God and the non-elect that are left here in the earth and on the earth 
will all bow the knee to Christ. Everyone, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord on that day. On that glorious and fearful day, because it's both, the Lamb comes to wage war on that day against His enemies and to reward those who have trusted in Him, His children. On that day, that glorious and fearful day, Christ will judge the world, He'll renew all creation, and He'll usher us into His eternal kingdom. All that's happening on that day. The day of 1 Corinthians 15. The day of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That'll all take place, saints, because of Christ's resurrection. His resurrection guarantees all this will take place and be completely done. His resurrection guarantees that all his blood-bought children will be brought in. They'll be placed on his right to enter into eternal life. Because here's why. Christ has already felt the sting of death for us. He did it to bring us eternal life. He secured it already. And all those who trust in Him will never, ever, ever feel the sting of damnation that we deserved. We'll never face condemnation. Because Christ was condemned in our place. And when He rose, we rose with Him. His imputed righteousness is granted to us, and we stand forever under His blood-soaked robe of righteousness. We enter into eternal life because he rose and conquered our enemies for us. That is our present and future hope. That is the present and future hope of all those through all of history that have trusted in Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and the promises that pointed to it. Old and New Testament saints. So the question for us today, for all of us here to think about, do we really trust in him? Do we really believe his resurrection will bring about all these things in the future, in the last day? I I pray that you do. But you need to ask yourself, if you're here today and you're not sure, do I trust in this one who is coming? You need to examine this, because if you don't trust in him, let me tell you something. It will be a fearful thing to stand in front of him on that day. On that day, the wrath of the Lamb will come to all those who have rejected him today. All those who reject his Lordship, his salvation, his gifts of grace, all those will face the Lamb's wrath on that day. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But if that wrath has already been poured out on Jesus in your stead, this can be a great day. The best day. If you trust in him, you'll never face his wrath. You'll never feel the wrath of God or be separated from his love. And his love, he'll promise to keep you and to raise you on the last day and transform you on the last day. He'll raise you up and he'll raise us up. Saints, this is so glorious to think about. He'll raise us up without the remnants of sin that we carry around in our bodies today. The only one who reflects the sin of man in heaven in future glory is Jesus. He bears the marks of our sin. And we are all made whole on that day. The lamb that was slain receives honor and praise and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we see that he is the lamb who was slain in our place. And we sing his praises now because of this. On that last day, we'll be raised up without the defilement of sin and enabled to reflect his glory for eternity. Then on that day, we'll inherit everything that he earned. His life, his promises are ours. 
And all that belongs to him now belongs to us. We'll inherit the new creation that he created to magnify his glory forever. And we'll enter into perfect fellowship with him. Let me show you one last passage to highlight that in Revelation 21. This is what will happen on that great last day that Paul is writing about in 1 Thessalonians 4. But here in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, we see what that day promises to those who are in Christ today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is our promise through Christ's resurrection. This is what we have to look forward to at his second coming. He is going to bring everything to an end to magnify his eternal power and glory. And we get to be a part of it. So therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the truth that we see that's revealed about Christ's resurrection and second coming in your word. Lord, I pray that it would transform the way we live, which is what the Apostle Paul intended as he gave that to the Thessalonians, that they would walk worthy of the one who had called them to glory in Christ, that they would live with hope in a world that's dying, that they would magnify Christ through their faith and hope and love until he comes. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grasp that, that we would be transformed by these truths, rejoicing over these truths and sharing these truths and encouraging one another with these truths when we go through suffering and sorrow and grief. Lord, help us to examine our doctrine of the last things according to your word and not our speculations. Lord, let us be humble in that. Lord, it's it's taken me about... Five years to transform some of my thinking on these issues. And the only way it's changed is by the washing of your word, by reflecting on the purpose of your resurrection and your second coming. Lord, I see that it is for your glory and we should rejoice in it now and forevermore. We should not want to mingle it with our speculations, but submit to it in joy and anticipation. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.